Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode Bad Blood. The bad blood that we'll be talking about tonight is the tension, I think it's probably a nice word for it, the tension that exists between John Gee, noted Egyptologist apologist for the LDS Church, and his former professor, Robert Rittner. Now, Robert Rittner is perhaps the foremost name in Egyptology in the Western Hemisphere. And as fate would have it, back when Robert Rittner was a professor of Egyptology at Yale University between 1991 and 1996, he happened to have in his class a young student named John Gee. John Gee would go on to receive his degree in Egyptology from Yale and thereafter become the most noted Egyptologist in the LDS Church, who spends a great deal of his time writing and speaking about how Egyptology supports, defends, and even authenticates the ancientness of Joseph Smith's Book of Abraham. It is possible that Robert Rittner, John Gee's former professor, might take some degree of umbrage at his student, going on to use the Egyptology taught him by Robert Rittner in such a cause. But regardless of the underlying reasons behind the friction and the tension that has existed for decades now between these two individuals, it appears to have started at a relatively early date. John Gee was still Robert Rittner's student in 1996 when Robert Rittner transferred from Yale University over to the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. Just five years later, in 2001, Robert Rittner published an article in Dialogue, a journal of Book of Mormon Thought, relating to the papyri that was discovered in 1967 in the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. In other words, the papyri that Joseph Smith had in his possession, or at least fragments of those papyri, one of which is titled The Book of Breathings of Hor. Hor being the name of the owner of this particular Book of Breathings. The name of the article is titled The Breathing Permit of Hor 34 Years Later. And the reason it's called 34 Years Later is because it's 34 years after it was discovered in 1967. This is a reappraisal of the situation relating to The Breathing Permit of Hor in the Joseph Smith Papyri, authored by Robert K. Rittner. Now, it is clear that Robert Rittner does not believe that the Book of Abraham is an authentic and accurate translation of an ancient Egyptian document, and certainly not of the ancient Egyptian document that was found in 1967, and which to all appearances appears to have been the basis that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Abraham. This ends up being a point of dispute, mainly because none of the documents, including the breathing permit of Hor that were found in 1967, have on them anything remotely resembling the translated Book of Abraham, and therefore, John Gee was forced to retreat to the idea that the actual text of the Book of Abraham must have been on one of those parts of the scrolls that was lost and not recovered. This in spite of the seemingly overwhelming evidence that such is not the case. I'm not going to go into that evidence now. We've been over that thoroughly in prior podcasts, particularly in the 13-hour podcast that John DeLynn and I did with Robert Rittner back, I believe it was in August of 2020. Right now, it is February 2nd of 2021 that I'm recording and about a half a year ago now already. But we go over that in detail in that podcast. I think it is fair to say that in this article, this dialogue article written by Robert Rittner back in 2001, he definitely takes Joseph Smith to task for what Rittner sees as Joseph Smith's inability to accurately translate Egyptian into English. And along the way, Robert Rittner also takes Hugh Nibley to task, which may have aroused John Gee's ire to some extent, given that John Gee apparently idolizes Hugh Nibley. And I say that based upon not only stories that Robert Rittner told about John Gee when he was in class at Yale University, but also other writings that John Gee has published on his blog and elsewhere about the extremely, extremely high respect in which he holds Hugh Nibley. In a number of footnotes, Robert Rittner disagrees with Hugh Nibley's translations of the Egyptian found in this particular book of breathings. For example, on page 112 of this dialogue article, footnote 105 says, Nibley misread 
this Egyptian word. It's TYT point K, TYT period K. That's how it's transliterated into English. The main point I'm trying to make is that Rittner says Nibley misread this. The next footnote says Nibley's insistence that the sign is not SDR but GRG shows ignorance of late hieratic and demotic forms. The next footnote 107 says Nibley mistranscribed an Egyptian glyph. Footnote 108 says Nibley garbled this passage. And those are just a few of the examples where in footnotes, Robert Rittner takes Hugh Nibley's abilities as an Egyptologist to task. But not only does Robert Rittner find fault with Hugh Nibley, who actually never was an Egyptologist, he was certainly an amateur and an interested, an avid amateur of Egyptology later in life, due primarily because of the discovery of the Book of Abraham Papyri in 1967. But John Gee, his former student, also does not escape censure. For example, in footnote 120, Robert Rittner says, Gee wrongly conflates this Anubis with masked Anubis priests at funerals. Actors did not, however, impersonate Mott, Osiris, and Isis at funerals. So, not to belabor the point, this article from 2001 in Dialogue by Robert Rittner certainly could have and probably did rub John Gee the wrong way. Shortly thereafter, in 2002, Robert Rittner would appear in what would commonly be called an anti-Mormon video relating to the Book of Abraham. It's an hour-long video. It was produced by an evangelical ministry as a means of ministering to Mormons by showing how the Book of Abraham really is not, not a modern production of an ancient text. And as I say, along with many other people, Robert Rittner appears in the video. This video achieved somewhat wide distribution in Utah, and it's hard to believe that John Gee was not aware of Robert Rittner's performance. At any rate, that was in 2002. And I'm not sure what may have happened between the 2001 Dialogue article and the 2002 Book of Abraham video, which, by the way, is titled The Truth About the Book of Abraham, and 2010. Other things may have happened. This is not meant to be an exhaustive treatise on the relationship between Robert Rittner and his former student, John Gee. But it is meant to set the stage for what happened in 2010. Now, during this interview that we had six months ago, John DeLynn and I, with Robert Rittner, Robert Rittner told a story that I had never heard before. And his story was that a number of years ago, John Gee had become the editor for a relatively brief period of time of an Egyptological journal, a journal of Egyptology located in Canada. And that John Gee wrote a savage review of one of Robert Rittner's books. And Robert Rittner's opinion was that it was simply over the top in its vitriol. And not only did John Gee do that, but John Gee also wrote a separate article in this journal, apparently poo-pooing the merits of peer review. Now, peer review is an essential component of academic writing. It is basically the idea that if a person submits a paper to a journal, that there should be peer review, which means that others of the writer's peers, those who know the subject as well as he or she knows the subject, need to review the paper to make sure that it passes muster, that it's up to snuff, that it really is supported by the texts that the author says it is supported by and not contradicted by other texts that the author may not mention. In other words, it's a way of making sure that what is published is up to academic standards of credibility, reliability, and scholarship. So once again, Robert Rittner remembered that John Gee had written an article savaging a book that Robert Rittner himself had written, but also in addition to that, that John Gee had written an article poo-pooing the merits of peer review, which seems a very strange thing to do for a scholar to be writing an article seemingly against the merits of peer review, a process that pretty much everybody in the academic world understands to be a good thing. Because without peer review, you could have all sorts of tripe being published under the guise of scholarship. But actually, it is not good scholarship, but you would have to be as expert in the field as the person who wrote it in order to recognize it. That's what it is supposed to weed out, those kinds of articles, to make bad articles good and good articles better. Now, I was fascinated by that story, and I had some interest in finding this journal to see what it was that Robert Rittner was talking about to actually read these articles that were written by John Gee for myself. 
but I was disappointed to find out that they were not readily accessible on the internet, and frankly, I dropped it there. It was Bill Real, and I want to give him full credit for this, because what he did was he actually got in contact with this Canadian Journal of Egyptology, which is still in existence today, and he ordered and received the two volumes, which are issue number 37 and issue number 38, in which these articles appear. Bill Real has published these articles on his Facebook page, so I encourage you to go there and read these if you want, but these articles are so important for the history of Book of Abraham apologetics that I feel it's important to devote this podcast to these articles. Now, the interesting thing is that these articles actually don't say anything about the Book of Abraham, and yet they have everything to do with this discussion because it goes back to the tension and the conflict and even the animus that John Gee apparently has for Robert Rittner, and possibly to some degree that Robert Rittner has in return for John Gee. So John Gee has been editing this journal for approximately two years. It's now 2010. He's having trouble getting the journal out on time, and therefore it is time for him to resign as editor. This is the last issue of the journal that comes out under John Gee's editorship. It is issue number 37. The title of the journal is The Journal of the Society for the Study of Egyptian Antiquities. It is printed in Toronto, Canada. Let me correct that. It doesn't appear to have been 2010 that this came out. It was 2012. So John Gee would have been working as editor from around 2010 to his final issue, issue 37, in 2012. Once again, this is his last issue. He's going to make a few comments about peer review, and then he is going to take the opportunity as his last hurrah of sorts to absolutely eviscerate Robert Rittner in what is purportedly a book review of one of Robert Rittner's books. We'll get to that savage book review here in a second, but first of all, I want to read to you what it is that John Gee has to say about peer review. This is in the very first part of this journal under the editorial comments and preface to the journal. This is under the heading, The Problem with Peer Review. John Gee writes, Peer review is supposed to be an unalloyed good, but anyone who thinks so cannot have spent much time in the process. In theory, peer review works as follows. A submission is received and the editor sends the submission without the name attached to one or more reviewers, each of whom is an expert in that subject. The reviewers independently recommend whether to accept the submission or suggest revisions. The reviewers do not know who wrote the paper and the author does not know who the reviewers are. That's called double-blind peer review and that's the way it is supposed to work. At least he understands the process. If the paper does not pass muster, the editor is relieved of the responsibility of rejecting a friend's paper. Now, that is a strange way to put it. I mean, if the paper does not pass muster, obviously it's not going to be accepted for publication. But the way he puts it is strange. If the paper does not pass muster, the editor is relieved of the responsibility of rejecting a friend's paper. I think what he's trying to say here is that it gets rejected by the peer review process. The editor himself is not the one who has to reject the paper, which is submitted by someone who is probably a friend because they're all in the same small community of Egyptology. I think that's probably the most charitable way of reading that. In practice, however, there are numerous problems with peer review. Since Egyptology must cover 4,000 years of human history and every facet of a complex civilization, Egyptologists must specialize of necessity. Okay, that makes sense. While the pool of Egyptologists is not very large, the number of peers in some specialized areas can in some cases be numbered on the fingers of one hand. In such small specialities or specialties, any reviewer who cannot figure out who the author is within a couple of minutes probably does not know enough to review the piece. And the same is true of an author who cannot discover who the reviewer is. If, as is true for some specialties, none of the specialists agree, it will simply not be possible to publish anything in a peer-reviewed journal. Okay, hang on a second. The first part he said makes sense. If you got a small enough pool, like a specialty in Egyptology, and maybe you got five or six people in the entire world who are specialized enough to write anything that is worthy of being published on that subject, what he's saying is that in spite of having double-blind peer review, it wouldn't take long for a person who's reviewing a piece to recognize who it was who wrote it, even though the name is not attached to it. 
And similarly, it'd probably be pretty easy for the author to figure out who the reviewer is. And I'm guessing that that would be because of comments made by the reviewer. They could put two and two together and figure it out. That part makes sense. And I understand that that part of peer review might be a little bit more illusion than reality if you have a small enough group of specialists. The problem I have is with his conclusion where he says, if, as is true for some specialties, none of the specialists agree, it will simply not be possible to publish anything in a peer-reviewed journal. Now, that is predicated on the idea that those who review the subject have to agree with the conclusions that are being drawn by the author. Now, that may have some truth to it, but really, the job of the reviewer is not to agree with the conclusions of the author, but to ensure that whatever those conclusions are, they are supported by logic, by scholarship, and by the sources. I would imagine that many, many, many articles on different subjects have been published regardless of the fact that the reviewer did not agree with the conclusions that were drawn. John Gee goes on, peer review can be manipulated for malicious purposes. Hmm. Examples from other disciplines have gained some notoriety. Under such circumstances, peer review can actually impede progress in a discipline as it prevents publication of new ideas or correction of mistakes. Well, once again, I'm sure that that could happen, but that would be using peer review as a way of enforcing the author to conform to the beliefs and the conclusions of the reviewer. Yes, that would be an abuse of peer review. Once again, the correct way of doing peer review is not to look at the conclusions and saying, we'll only publish what we already agree with, but to make sure that the scholarship is correct, precise, and logical. That is all the reviewer is supposed to do. Sure, it can be abused. Anything can be abused, but it doesn't mean that peer review should be thrown out the window. John Gee goes on, because peer review is mostly anonymous and unremunerated work, i.e. don't get paid for it, there is no incentive for a peer reviewer to invest time or effort in it. Well, <laughs> well, no incentive for fame or for money, but obviously there must be an incentive, which is the furtherance of and the promotion of good, solid scholarship for a particular journal. That's the incentive, I think. As a result, some peer reviews are perfunctory without much thought or effort. Yeah, I'm sure that happens, but it shouldn't be the rule. Once again, not a reason to get rid of peer review. I am aware, he says, I am aware of one papyrus published in an ostensibly peer-reviewed journal where the author cannot possibly have even read the papyrus he was publishing, but none of the reviewers even noticed showing that they cannot have read it either. You know what's really interesting is that I've got a feeling he doesn't say what this is, right? I've got a feeling he's talking exactly about Robert Rittner's 2001 dialogue article because Robert Rittner did not have access to the papyrus itself. And it was published, this is the one where Robert Rittner took Hugh Nibley to task, gasp, for his translations of the papyrus. He took John Gee to task, double gasp, for his translations of the papyrus. And now he's going to fault Robert Rittner for not having access to the papyrus. And then he's going to fault the reviewers because they didn't have access to the papyrus either. What else could it be except for the Joseph Smith papyrus being locked up in the church vault and given only limited access to scholars, I will bet you dollars to donuts right now. That's what he's talking about, the dialogue article. Let me read this again. This is great. I am aware of one papyrus published in an ostensibly peer-reviewed journal where the author cannot possibly have even read the papyrus he was publishing. Why not? Because it's locked up in the vault. But none of the reviewers even noticed, showing that they cannot have read it either. So they didn't have access to the papyrus either. This publication has been cited numerous times, showing that none of the scholars citing the publication had bothered to read the papyrus either. This is clearly a failure. Yes, John Gee calls this a failure, but the failure, if failure there be, is the fact that the church has the original Joseph Smith papyrus locked up in their vaults and would not allow scholars to have access to the actual papyrus to review it, now becomes the fault of the peer review system. John Gee goes on, as part of the peer review process, reviewers sometimes make suggestions to improve the article. Okay, these suggestions should improve the article. Yeah, sometimes, however, they do not improve the article. 
At other times, they would have improved the article, but the author has chosen to reject them. Well, yeah, sure. That much is pretty obvious, isn't it? But it doesn't mean peer review is a bad thing. Finally, one cannot edit a journal. Now he's talking about himself, and you get the idea that some of this is personally motivated. He's really talking about himself as a specialist in one small field of Egyptology. And therefore, because there are not enough specialists around that know it as well as he does, that somehow he gets a pass on peer review. I'm sorry, but this is the sense I'm getting. Finally, one cannot edit a journal without stepping on various toes. Okay, so now he's going to talk about the toes that he stepped on during the two years he was editing this journal. Finally, one cannot edit a journal without stepping on various toes. Well, maybe one could, but he can't. I regret that I had to turn down many papers. Wait a second. Okay, now I'm getting confused. Why does he have to turn down many papers? I thought he said that that's what the peer review process was supposed to weed out so that the editor how did he put it? If the paper does not pass muster, the editor is relieved of the responsibility of rejecting a friend's paper. But now just a few paragraphs later, he seems to contradict himself when he says, I regret that I had to turn down many papers, including some written by friends. No personal slight was intended, even if some was taken. So apparently some people got their knickers in a twist about how they were treated by John Gee as editor of this journal. He goes on, it is understandable why a freshly graduated student might be justifiably proud of themselves. Okay, that's an unfortunate sentence. <laughs> he goes from singular to plural. Hey, read this again. It is understandable. I think the editor needs an editor. It is understandable why a freshly graduated student might be justifiably proud of themselves. Okay. It must be so wearisome to work with mere mortals. Oh my God. This is quintessential John Gee. It must be so wearisome to work with mere mortals. Mere mortals might not be overawed with a freshly graduated student's certifiable brilliance. Just look at the diploma. That's what he puts in parentheses. Just look at the diploma. And might actually make editorial suggestions or have the temerity to question the logic of the argument. I apologize to those who were offended at the prospect of working with mere mortals. Oh my gosh, this is just dripping with sarcasm. And it's so funny because he says no personal slight was intended, even if some was taken. So obviously some was taken. And now he's going to explain why it wasn't his fault that offense was taken when he turned down articles because he's sitting there telling at least some of the people whose papers were rejected that they are freshly graduated students who are overawed by their own brilliance. Just look at their diploma and they are offended that an editor might make editorial suggestions or have the temerity to question the logic of the argument. I apologize to those who are offended at the prospect of working with mere mortals. Well, that's a real sincere apology. You can tell that, can't you? Finally, the last paragraph where he suddenly slips in the fact that he's resigning. I am sorry for the inordinate delay in this issue. As one literary character expressed it, I am afraid you have been long desiring my absence, nor have I anything to plead in excuse of my stay. And he actually footnotes that to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, chapter 46. Okay. Anyway, when an editor can no longer bring the journal in on time, it is time to leave. I wish Katja Gebs the best as she takes over the helm of the JSSEA. I also thank the authors for their long suffering as their articles took longer than expected to come out. I also thank the reviewers who did their task voluntarily and anonymously. Strange that he has to emphasize what should normally be a given. Why does he thank reviewers who did their task anonymously? Wouldn't we expect that they would if blind peer review, double blind peer review was being enforced? Hmm, perhaps the Egyptologist doth protest too much. And then he goes on to thank a few other people and say, without their assistance, this issue would never have appeared. John Gee. So that is his little article about the problem with peer review. Now let's get on to what you've all been waiting for, which is his savaging, his eviscerating of a book written by Robert Ridner. This you will find on page 143 of this same journal, issue number 37. Now here's the confusion that I have. In the upper left-hand corner of every page, there is a notation, J-S-S-E-A, that's Journal for the Society for the Study of Egyptian Antiquities, J-S-S-E-A. And the copyright at the bottom of the cover page says 2012. But on the inside of the journal, at the upper left-hand corner of each page where it has J-S-S-E-A, 37 for the issue, it then has the year printed as 2012. 
10. Is it possible that John Gee actually got this in two years late? I'm not sure, but there's a discrepancy between the years noted on the pages of 2010 on every page and the year that's put at the front of the journal itself of 2012 when it was copyrighted. So it may be that he was indeed very, very late in getting this to press. But as I say, on page 143, we have the review by John Gee of Robert Rittner Jr.'s book, The Libyan Anarchy, Inscription from Egypt's Third Intermediate Period. This had been published in 2009 at the price of $59.95. So this is a collection and a transcription of a body of documents relating to the Libyan anarchy, and these are inscriptions from Egypt's Third Intermediate Period. It is volume 21 in Writings of the Ancient World, which are a series of volumes which are meant to collect bodies of ancient documents and their translations, such as this. So now we're to the point in the podcast that we've all been looking forward to, John Gee's review of Robert Rittner's book. But before we get to that, I want to thank all my listeners who have donated to Radio Free Mormon. I really, really appreciate your contributions and want to take this opportunity to thank everybody who has donated to Radio Free Mormon. I would ask you now, if you have not yet donated to Radio Free Mormon, please hit pause. Please go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now and make a donation. You can make a monthly donation of $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, $100 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And now we are ready to go to John Gee's review of Robert Rittner's book. I said earlier that this review has nothing to do with the book of Abraham, but in another way, it has everything to do with the book of Abraham because it is apparent that John Gee, from his point of view, has suffered the slings and arrows of Robert Rittner long enough, and they have festered for approximately a decade as of this point, and now he is going to vent his spleen on Robert Rittner. John Gee is not going to take Robert Rittner head on in what Robert Rittner has to say about the book of Abraham or John Gee's scholarship. Instead, he's going to play the game on another field. He is going to take the fight to Robert Rittner in a review of his book, The Libyan Anarchy, Inscriptions from Egypt's Third Intermediate Period. This is volume 21 in the series, Writings of the Ancient World. Now, Writings of the Ancient World is apparently published by the Society of Biblical Literature. It is an esteemed and respected publication. So initially, of course, he's going to want to distance himself from attacking the editors of the Society of Biblical Literature. He'll talk about how great all the other volumes have been, but he's going to make an exception on this one volume by Robert Rittner because this is where he will aim his fire. For 20 years, he begins, for 20 years, the Society of Biblical Literature's series, Writings of the Ancient World, has made available affordable and accurate translations of ancient texts that prove invaluable to students and professionals, especially ancient historians and biblical scholars who might not be proficient in the various languages. So there's the obligatory salutation to this series by the Society of Biblical Literature. He goes on, this book continues that series with translations of a number of texts from the Libyan period, the Egyptian time period contemporary with the bulk of the biblical narrative. Professor Rittner is generally a capable scholar. <laughs> and by the way, that's about the best thing that John Gee is going to say about Robert Rittner here. It, it all goes downhill from this point. Professor Rittner is generally a capable scholar, but has been known to badly misread the texts that he was purportedly publishing. And by the way, I think that might be a typo here. I think he means purportedly publishing, purportedly. Let me look that up and see if that's even a word. No, it does not appear to be a word. <laughs> okay, at least not according to my Google search that I just did right there live while I'm recording this. It's always a bad sign when you're starting to criticize somebody and right off the bat, you inadvertently use a word that does not even exist. So going back to what he said, Professor Rittner is generally a capable scholar, but has been known to badly misread the texts that he was purportedly publishing. And now this is very interesting because you would think that he would have a footnote for that kind of a critical statement of one of the world's leading Egyptologists, and indeed he does. It's footnote 24. Hmm, who is he citing to for this proposition? 
footnote 24, we look down at the bottom of the page. Oh my gosh, it's his friend, Carrie Muelstein. John Gee is saying that Robert Rittner has been known to badly misread the texts that he was purportedly publishing and as authority for that proposition, he's going to cite to Carrie Muelstein in his article, The Book of Breathings in Its Place from a Farms Review. He doesn't say the foundation for ancient research in Mormon studies because that might be too obvious that it was Mormon related. Instead, he says Farms Review from 2005. So his source for his criticism of Robert Rittner that he badly misreads the text is none other than Carrie Muelstein. Now that footnote comes in the middle of a sentence. There's a comma there and he goes on. So his, so Professor Rittner's translations and particularly his transliterations need to be checked against the original glyphs. We can't trust that Robert Rittner to get it right. The work under consideration, John Gee continues, in other words, this book that he's talking about, the work under consideration shows that still to be the case. Oh, so Robert Rittner continues to badly misread the text he is purportedly publishing. He goes on, Professor Rittner translates nearly 300 texts in his anthology. That's this book, his anthology, but numbers them rather oddly so that it seems as though there are only about 200. Most of this material is conveniently available in the more comprehensive work of Carl Jansen Wilkown and Olivier Perdue, neither of which does Rittner mention. So John Gee is saying that, first off, this book by Rittner is not necessary because there are two other works that cover the same material and are even more comprehensive, and Rittner's is actually inferior because he does a bad job of transliterating the text. John Gee goes on, anyone who uses Rittner's work will want to have Jansen Winkeln at his elbow. For example, Rittner's translation of the settlement history of Hinutawe from the 10th pylon of Karnak is missing significant portions of the text, which may be found in Jansen Winkel. Now, by the way, I have no idea whether this is true or not, whether John Gee's criticisms have any merit, and if so, how much merit they may have. That's not really the issue here. The issue is the vitriol, which is already starting to manifest itself and which will be coming in spades later on as we continue through this review, that John Gee spews all over his former professor, Robert Rittner. John Gee goes on, the translations are adequate. Okay, well, I guess that's his way of saying they're good, they're fine, but he has to say they're adequate. Hyperpolotskian translations often leave the impression that the text has been translated, but not into English. The translator, that's Robert Rittner, the translator seems to have avoided the worst excesses of the Polotskians, but the translations are still often awkward and mechanical. So even when John Gee has to acknowledge that Rittner did a good job, he still has to find something to criticize. Even though Robert Rittner avoided the worst excesses of the Polotskians, his translations are still often awkward and mechanical. This is one of Rittner's few positive contributions to the field. So he can't just say it's positive. He has to modify that by saying it's one of the few positive contributions that Robert Rittner has to this field. One not written with the primary intent of attacking someone, and he seems thoroughly bored. It is disappointing that Rittner's considerable verbal gifts vanish when he is not writing vitriol. Okay, now John Gee is really, really tipping his hand. This is all about his perceived vitriol that Robert Rittner used in talking about the book of Abraham and talking about Hugh Nibley's scholarship and John Gee's scholarship in that 2001 dialogue article that we talked about earlier. He perceives him as being vitriolic and so now's his chance to return the vitriol. Once again, this is one of Rittner's few positive contributions to the field. One not written with the primary intent of attacking someone. So he sees that dialogue article as Robert Rittner having the primary intent of attacking someone. And he, Rittner, seems thoroughly bored. It is disappointing that Rittner's considerable verbal gifts vanish when he is not writing vitriol. So he's going to acknowledge that Rittner has considerable verbal gifts, but that's going to be a left-handed compliment because right away he's going to say that they vanish. They're not present in this book about the Libyan text, which he's reviewing, but that they completely vanish when he is not writing vitriol. It is of some interest to me that John Gee can see this in Robert Rittner, but is apparently completely unable to see it in himself. We will see that John Gee's verbal gifts, such as they are, are at their highest level when he is heaping vitriol on Robert Rittner. Professor Rittner, he goes on, Professor Rittner seems proud, seems proud that his was the first Egyptological volume in the series, Writings of the Ancient World, to provide transliterations of the texts. 
This would have been a real achievement if the transliterations were on the facing pages of the translations like those of the other volumes of the series. So in other words, he says it would have been a real achievement except for the way the book itself is organized. <laughs> so it would have been a real achievement if the transliterations were on the facing pages of the translations. In other words, you could open it up and compare the transliteration with the translations like those of the other volumes of the series. So apparently this is done differently than other volumes in the series, as if Professor Rittner was in charge of how the volume itself was edited and produced. John Gee goes on, Alas, such was not the case. Five pages of straight transliteration, followed by six or seven pages of translation, becomes ludicrous, besides useless. So it's not just useless, it's ludicrous. The pinnacle is ten pages of straight transliteration, Think of the paper and ink wasted on pages that will scarcely be read. Exclamation point. Without them, the volume would have been much shorter and probably significantly less expensive. Inclusion of the transliterations might have been helpful if the transliterations were accurate. So now it's not just horrible and ludicrous on top of being useless the way they're presented in the book, but now he's going to criticize the transliterations themselves. John Gee is really going for the jugular at this point. Once again, he says inclusion of the transliterations might have been helpful if the transliterations were accurate. Rittner's transliterations are generally an idealized view of the text, as though they were written. Oh, once again, he gets confused between a singular and his plural. He talks about the text and then mentions they were written. He says, Rittner's transliterations are generally an idealized view of the text as though they were written in the correct Middle Egyptian of a thousand years previously, but they were not. So the text in the transliteration often does not reflect what is written in the hieroglyphs. He drops the N, I-N. He says, what is written in the hieroglyphs? You know, <laughs> it sounds like John Gee is editor, needs an editor himself. I know I said that before, but it's becoming more and more evident that such is the case. So once again, he says, the text in the transliteration often does not reflect what is written the hieroglyphs, where I assume he means what is written in the hieroglyphs. And Rittner's transliterations suppress or distort numerous features of the contemporary language. Throughout the book, brackets are so commonly misplaced that it is a wonder that they were included at all. Wow, I'm getting a good idea as to why it was that Rittner took so much umbrage at this article in this book review. The poor formatting going on with John Gee's review, the poor formatting can at least be explained by noting that Professor Rittner simply dumped material on Bob Buller, who tried to pull together a coherent manuscript out of the mess that Rittner gave him. And there he's citing to page 10 of the volume. I doubt that it actually says all those words, though he does put in quotation marks, a coherent manuscript. So that much at least appears to be a direct quote. Buller, who apparently was the guy who formatted all of this material for publication, Buller has spent an enormous amount of work on this volume. And the fact that it is as good as it is says much to Buller's credit. Okay, so it's really a crappy volume, but any good things about it are Buller's credit, all the bad stuff, we're going to chalk that up to Robert Rittner. Buller should be exonerated for the continuous typesetting problems, such as not placing the transliterations and translations on facing pages. Right. He already identified that as a problem. Transliterations and translations are not on facing pages. And that's what he said makes it not only useless, but ludicrous. So, of course, that's not Robert Rittner who's formatting the volume. That's Bob Buller. But he's going to give Bob Buller a pass because he wants to focus his ire on Robert Rittner. So he says Buller should be exonerated for the continuous typesetting problems, which are obviously Buller's responsibility, but he should be exonerated from those, such as not placing the transliteration and translations on facing pages, or the ubiquitous breaks of lines in the middle of the words. Professor Rittner should have caught some of those. So it's Professor Rittner's fault. Okay, Professor Rittner should have caught some of those. It was simply beyond Buller's skill to make a silk purse out of the sow's ear that he had been given. Okay, so Robert Rittner's work is a sow's ear. The book appears in print a decade out of date. Well, what does he mean by this? A decade out of date. Only four works in the bibliography date after 1999. At one point, Rittner says that a book that came out five years before his did was too late to be considered. Rittner only lists it as Wilson 2005. Wilson would be the last name of the author. Wilson 2005, that would be the year of the publication. But does not include it in the bibliography and so leaves follow-up 
impossible. If this is correct, what he's saying is that all he has for a reference to this paper is Wilson 2005 in the text itself. Normally, you would have that in the bibliography with a full citation so that it could be followed up. This is where John Gee is finding fault again with Robert Rittner. Several times, Rittner says that the dimensions are not given, even though they are in a book that he lists in his bibliography and published by the Oriental Institute where he works, but apparently could not bother to use as a basis for the inscriptions that he published from it. The numerous historical errors will lead those who the numerous the numerous historical errors will lead those who are not specialists on third intermediate period studies astray. Here are a sampling. Okay, now he's going to give a list of errors that he feels that Robert Rittner made historically in his book. I am not able to tell you how accurate these criticisms are. All I can say is that John Gee is obviously on a vendetta here, and he is going to interpret everything as error-prone as he possibly can. And so that needs to be taken into account when he is making these criticisms. Here he goes. Rittner provides a helpful genealogy. Okay, so he's going to say something nice about Robert Rittner. But you notice that whenever John Gee says something nice about Robert Rittner, it's only so he can turn around immediately and stick the knife in. Rittner provides a helpful genealogy of Ankh Efenkonsu, showing the high priest Menkepera ten generations apart from Shishank I. This would mean that if Rittner had reconstructed the genealogy correctly, then for ten generations the men in this genealogy were consistently having children at the average age of eleven. Either Rittner's reconstruction is incorrect. You see, here comes the knife. Either Rittner's reconstruction is incorrect, or the chronology of the third intermediate period needs to be expanded on the order of a century. My gosh, you can just see how John Gee was poring over this manuscript, trying to find any fault he possibly could. And the only good things he has to say about the book, which are few and far between, are setups for insults. He goes on with another item. Rittner often assigns rulers incorrectly. This is attributable to a number of reasons. Sometimes it simply reflects the uncertain nature of work on the third intermediate period. So there's an uncertainty involved here. And that is certainly a good reason why Rittner might be assigning rulers quote unquote incorrectly. But he goes on. Sometimes it reflects the inability or unwillingness to stay current in an active field. So Rittner is not staying current in the active field. Sometimes it reflects carelessness. So not only is he not staying current, he's being careless. A few examples from the first 70 pages will suffice. And by the way, when a reviewer says a few examples from the first 70 pages will suffice, it's usually a good indicator that that's as far as they read in the book, the first 70 pages going on. And here he gives about 10 bullet points of things he finds fault with Robert Rittner in this volume. An inscription of Shishank, the sixth A, is attributed to Shishank the first. An unattributable inscription is attributed to Osorkon the second. An inscription of Petubastis the first is attributed to Shishank the third. An inscription of Takeloth the third is attributed to Osorkon the third. An inscription of Osorkon the second is attributed to Osorkon the third. Inscriptions from different rulers are combined. So there he's not going to give us details. He'll just give us a page number. An inscription of Shishank IV is attributed to Osorkon III. An inscription likely of Osorkon II is unattributed. Well, wait a second. Look how, look how desperate John Gee is to find things to pad this list. There is an inscription, apparently, that is only likely of Osorkon II. It's not for sure it's of Osorkon II, but apparently John Gee thinks it's likely of Osorkon II. Robert Rittner in his book does not attribute it at all because apparently it's not sure who it belongs to, but he's going to call this an error on Robert Rittner's part. Reading it once again, an inscription likely of Osorkon II is unattributed. And finally, an unattributable, an unattributable inscription of early dynasty the 22nd is attributed to Osorkon the first. So in these last two, he's going to say that it is an error for Robert Rittner to not attribute an inscription to a person that it's only likely attributable to. And then he's going to turn around and say just the reverse, that there's an unattributable inscription. And Robert Rittner's error is to actually attribute that one. It seems that it's hard for Robert Rittner to win for losing in John Gee's eyes. For this reason, John Gee goes on, for this reason, Rittner's book needs to be used very carefully because it's so riddled with errors, right? It needs to be used very carefully and everything should be double-checked. 
We are getting down to the end of this review. Just so you know, uh, the end is coming. While the 21st through 24th dynasties can properly be called the Libyan period, and there's certainly Libyan influence. In other words, this is the stuff that Rittner got right. So he's agreeing with him for the first part of the sentence. Now he's going to go on. Rittner has a tendency to see influence when it is not actually there. Two examples will suffice. Rittner labels one individual a Libyan dynast and reads his name. And here we have transliteration from Egyptian, which I cannot read for you. He has misread the name, says Guy. He has misread the name, which is this other transliteration. And actually, it looks pretty darn close to the original transliteration. There may be one letter difference. The first transliteration is PK-W backwards 3-IW-S with a line over it and another backwards 3. And by the way, apparently... Robert Ritter puts a question mark after it to note that it is not necessarily completely accurate. And then Guy says he has misread the name, which is actually, it's actually PKW backwards 3R backwards 3WR. So there's maybe about a dime's worth of difference between the two. They are different, but not that much. And then John Guy calls this an odd spelling for the well-attested Egyptian name of P backwards 3-KRR. Huh, Okay. Well, I guess he got him on that one. In one of the priestly annals, his, Rittner's, his insertion of the title Chief of the Ma, M-A, is simply his own invention surreptitiously inserted into a lacuna. By the way, lacuna is the word that means there's a gap in the text. There is a breaking of the fragment. The actual papyrus is not present and the gap is called a lacuna. It just means an open space. So what he's saying is that the chief of the Ma is simply Rittner's own invention that Rittner surreptitiously inserted into a blank space in the parchment, a gap in the parchment into a lacuna. The preceding, he's winding up now, the preceding has been a mere sample of the hundreds of errors that plague the volume. There seems little point wasting paper by listing all of them. Oh my gosh, he is so insufferable, this John Gee character. There seems little point wasting paper by listing all of them. In the end, and this is his final paragraph, and he's really lining up here with bated breath to deliver the final coup de grace slam that he's going to give to Robert Rittner, his former professor. In the end, this book constantly reminds the reader of Breasted's ancient records. That's a book by Breasted, who was one of the pioneers and one of the huge Egyptologists about a hundred years ago. And Breasted, once again, is the individual who founded the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, where Robert Rittner is a professor and an endowed chair holder. So in the end, this book constantly reminds the reader of Breasted's ancient records, a groundbreaking translation effort making many texts available for the first time in English which unfortunately is out of date and in desperate need of revision. Breasted's work took at least half a century to achieve that feat. In other words, of being out of date and in desperate need of revision. Breasted's work took at least half a century to achieve that feat. But Rittner's needed merely to roll off the press. Bam! Take that, Robert Rittner. It took Breasted's work 50 years to become out of date and in desperate need of revision, all your book had to do was roll off the press to become out of date and in desperate need of revision. Wow, vitriol much? While Egyptologists, Guy concludes, while Egyptologists may find Professor Rittner's numerous mistakes amusing, oh my gosh, no historian or biblical scholar should rely on his work. In that sense, the volume defeats its purpose. And then it is signed, John Gee. Yes, that is the book review heard round the world. And it's very, very clear to me why it was that Robert Rittner was so upset when he read it. And it appears that probably he was not the only one who was upset when he read this book review. And not only that, it appears that other people were not just upset with the book review, but also upset with John Gee's article about why peer review is not necessarily a good thing. The reason I say that is because this is, once again, the very last issue of the Journal of the Society for the Study of Egyptian Antiquities, where John Gee was the editor. It's volume 37. By the time the next volume rolls out, volume 38, John Gee is no longer the editor. I read earlier 
from volume 37 where John Gee says that he cannot bring the volume in on time. It appears it may have taken two years or so to be brought in at all. And I say that once again because the pages say 2010 and the cover says 2012. But Bill Reel also got volume 38 of the Journal of the Society for the Study of Egyptian Antiquities. And now we have a new editor. There is a new sheriff in town and this new sheriff is going to respond, obviously, to criticisms that she has received regarding John Gee's articles in issue 37. And she needs, she feels, to set the record straight. So here it is, volume 38. The editor-in-chief is now no longer John Gee, is Katja Gebs, that's K-A-T-J-A Gebs, G-O-E-B-S. And she begins this issue with introductory comments from the editor. She states, over the last two years, JSSEA has undergone a number of changes. Some of these were communicated in the editorial to issue 37, the last volume edited by John Gee, who resigned from the post of editor-in-chief due to time constraints. And now Katja Gebs, ever the classy editor, is going to thank John Gee for his service. The editorial board, trustees, and I am sure members of the SSEA would like to thank him for many years of dedicated service to our society and wish him all the best for his future academic endeavors. Okay, now she's going to address John Gee. After thanking him for all of his years of service, now she's got to try and patch the holes in the hole of the ship that John Gee left with two of his final articles. The new editor goes on. Some points raised in that last editorial and a few others warrant further comment. The first has to do with formatting and printing, which is not really very interesting to us here. The second has to do with, oh, peer review. Hmm, I wonder what the new editor has to say about peer review. Let's find out. It is the conviction of the current editor and board that peer review is an indispensable, even if not infallible factor in ensuring high academic standards. You can tell she's gotten a lot of pushback from what John Gee wrote about peer review, can't you? She wants to set the record straight and say, yes, we do use peer review. It's not infallible, but it is indispensable in ensuring high academic standards. It has also become, at least in the North American continent, a sine qua non for young scholars seeking to bolster their CVs when applying for grants and jobs. What is more, the referee's comments often furnish helpful additional materials and theoretical insights for author and editor. JSSEA, this journal, will remain peer-reviewed. Item number three of the new editor's comments have to do with the journal issue number. And she talks about confusion with the journal issue numbers and that they're going to redo that in order to alleviate that confusion. I think that I have experienced some of that confusion in trying to figure out when exactly the prior journal, issue 37, was published, whether 2010 or 2012. So that's probably a good change. But once again, it doesn't necessarily concern us. Number four, however, the last item on her list is book reviews. And you can tell, you can tell that she is responding directly to that book review that John Gee gave of Robert Rittner's book. And she must have gotten a whole host of pushback about that. Here's what she says. Number four, book reviews. Recently, there has been some discussion about the appropriate level of criticism that might be conveyed in a review. Hmm, wonder what she's talking about. Our book reviews committee is committed to ensuring that a scholarly discussion of new academic works takes place, that neither descends into insubstantial generalities nor into angry personal vendettas. So what she's saying is that John Gee's book review of, <laughs> of Robert Rittner's book descended into insubstantial generalities and also into an angry personal vendetta. Once again, she says, our book reviews committee is committed to ensuring that a scholarly discussion of new academic works takes place that neither descends into insubstantial generalities nor into angry personal vendettas. John Gee. An apparent recent exception to this rule, <laughs> an apparent recent exception to this rule, i.e. John Gee's review of Robert Rittner's book, an apparent recent exception to this rule represents an oversight resulting from time pressures shortly before publication of the issue in question. 
So this is fascinating. She doesn't want to actually say what book review she's talking about, but we know exactly what she's talking about. And so does everybody who actually subscribed to and reads this journal. But it's also interesting that she appears to say that John Gee, remember, he resigned because he was unable to bring the journal in on time which meant that there were time pressures involved. And it appears that John Gee took advantage of those time pressures to get this book review in without getting it reviewed by the book reviews committee. Oh, wasn't that clever of him? Never let an emergency go to waste. (laughs) An apparent recent exception to this rule represents an oversight resulting from time pressures shortly before publication of the issue in question. And you know, it suddenly occurs to me that John Gee's comments about peer review not necessarily being a good thing may have been written by him as cover for the fact, presumably, the fact that he did not submit his book review of Robert Ridner's book to the book review committee. I mean, what really can they say of any value to John Gee that would make his book review any better? And then the new editor, Katja Gebs, goes on to conclude by talking about what it is they hope to accomplish under her editorship of the journal and the goals that they have and thanking everybody who's contributed to this particular volume. So that is the rest of the story. That is the ill-considered article that John Gee wrote in this particular journal regarding peer review and also his book review of Robert Rittner which the very next editor of the same journal indicates that in her opinion, it descended into insubstantial generalities and into angry personal vendettas. And also, which the next editor indicates, John Gee snuck in at the last minute, taking advantage of the time pressures shortly before publication that John Gee himself created by not being able to bring the journal in on time. Now, this podcast has been more than just a pleasurable and illuminating trip down memory lane. This podcast is also more than just an examination of an important episode in the ongoing Book of Abraham Wars between John Gee and Robert Rittner. It also serves as an excellent template for what I hope to talk about with John DeLynn in a special podcast here in the next few weeks because now, in real time, John Gee is up to the same old tricks. Except this time, instead of writing a vitriolic and inflammatory book review on Robert Ridner, he is writing multiple vitriolic and inflammatory book reviews on his former colleague, Brian Hauglid. John Gee has written not just one philippic against Brian Hauglid's book, a book in the Joseph Smith Papers Project that Brian Hauglid co-edited with Robin Jensen. As I say, John Gee has written not just one critical and inflammatory article about this book. He has written three, two of them in January of 2021. That's how recent this is. And heaven knows, John Gee may write even more critical book reviews of this one volume before John DeLynn and I are able to sit down and talk about it. I'm really looking forward to that discussion with John DeLynn. But back to John Gee's book review of Robert Rittner's book. This is a classic example of the bad blood that exists between John Gee and his former professor, Robert Rittner. The bad blood that apparently has not abated, but continues to the present day. So in honor of John Gee, we're going to close out this podcast with the hit song by Neil Sedaka back in the 1970s when I was in high school. John Gee, this song's for you. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.
the slide. 